against Job was his wrath kindled because he justified himself rather than God. Also against his three friends was his wrath kindled because they had found no answer and yet had condemned Job. So he's angry. He's angry with Job. He's angry with Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. He's angry that Job has been misunderstood. He's angry that the nature of trials has been misunderstood. He's angry that God has been misrepresented in the midst of trials and been misrepresented too. Elihu appealed to these men, all four of them, chapter 32, verse number 10, for their attention as he began uh, to speak. And really in chapter 32, as he begins to speak, he says repeatedly, in essence, I have something to say. I want you to listen to me. I have something to say. He seems to repeat that again and again in chapter number 32. We moved to chapter number 33 where the young man, Elihu, uh, he begins speaking. And he, he told the men of his uh, fitness to speak to Job and speak to his three friends. He does that at the beginning of the chapter. and He does it again at the ending of the chapter. Elihu, in chapter 33, you'll remember we talked about how that he quoted Job's own words. He'll do that again here in chapter number 34 tonight. He quoted his own words back to him where he declared himself righteous. Um, he had done nothing wrong. You remember that? I was thinking about when I was going through this review in my own mind at, at, uh, at my desk today, a couple of things about our speech. Um, have you ever said anything, wish you could get it back? Have you ever done that? You can't get it back. You may can help somebody to understand what was misunderstood, or you may can make an apology, but you can't get it back. Once it's out there, it's out there. You can't unstate it. That's why we ought to be careful what we say, how we say what we say, and when we say what we do say. I thought about this. If you don't say anything, you cannot be misquoted. Have you ever thought about that? You ever heard somebody say something, then you spoke up, and it got twisted when it got down the road a piece or the second phone call after the one you were on? story always gets a little bigger. A little more sensational. Um, sometimes someone, before they hit the end button on the telephone, they'll say, don't you repeat what I said. And what they ought to go on and say is, the reason why I don't want you repeating it is I added to it. Gave you my two cents with it. So if you don't say anything, you cannot be misquoted. Be careful about your speech when you are emotionally charged. You ever said anything when you when you were upset? You ever been mad and said something? Get a day or two down the road and you wish you hadn't uh, said what you said. We should never. I'm going to be polite with this statement. We have got it typed in my notes when I was typing. I jotted it down, then typed it up a little different. And I jotted it down, and you ought to thank me for this. But we should never miss a good opportunity to remain silent in most matters used to be stated like this, we should never miss a good opportunity to keep our mouth shut. Listen to what Solomon said about this. Proverbs 26 and verse number 20, where no wood is there, the fire goeth out. So where there is no tailbearer, the strife ceaseth. This is a situation that two or three of us are trying to aid in. It's a church situation. And two or three of us have stated to those involved in it, look, you'll do well to let the rumors die out. Don't add to them. Don't stir it. That's what Solomon said. If you want it to go away, if you want it to die out, quit throwing wood on the fire. That's what he said. 
Now, sometimes that's easy said and hard done, right? We're all self-preservationists. We want our two cents worth in, but we'll do well just to let it be. We'll do ourselves a favor and others a favor as well. Over in chapter 33, I've got to move on. Um, Elihu says to Job, he says, Job, you've committed folly in declaring yourself to be without sin. He also went on to say you've committed double folly in accusing God of being unjust with you. Uh, Elihu stated Job's folly to him. He said, God's greater than you are, Job. And God doesn't owe you an explanation, Job. He's going to repeat that in chapter 34. And then he talked to Job about how God had revealed himself through dreams, and he did, and days gone by. We don't believe in that uh, these days because of the completion of the word of God. He had revealed himself through, through sickness, and he had revealed himself through a mediator. And we know that mediator to be the Lord Jesus, of course. Elihu, in chapter number 33, this is what he did. He reminded Job of something very important we all need to be reminded of when we go through trials. And that is the fact that God speaks. Now, there are periods of time that we think God's not speaking at all. But God still speaks, you know. He speaks through many avenues. He speaks through his word. He speaks through prayer. He speaks through the Holy Spirit. He'll speak in the providential arrangements in your life. Where are you at right now in life? What's going on around you? It's not an accident. God will speak. And so he reminds him that even through his pain, God speaks. Now let me tell you what chapter 32, 33, and 34, what's going on. I'll give you just a little brief heading. In chapter number 32, Elihu, you see his refusal to remain silent. He's been silent all this time. Chapter number 33, there's Elihu's reminder that God does speak to his people. Chapter number 34, you're going to find Elihu's rebuttal um, uh, to Job in chapter number 34. Look at verses 1 through 4. Elihu basically says to Job and to his other friends, I have something further to say. 1 through 4. Furthermore, Elihu answered and said, Give my words, O you wise men. Um, hear my words, excuse me, O you wise men, and give ear unto me that ye have knowledge. For the ear trieth words as the mouth tasteth meat. Let us choose to us judgment. Let us know among ourselves what is good. He says, I have something further I want to say in your hearing. Notice how Elihu is going to quote Job, verses 5 through 9. In verse number 5, he says, Job, these are your words. Watch what he says. For Job hath said. He said, Job, you said it. You said, I am righteous, and God hath taken away my judgment. He said, you said, Job, out of your own mouth, your words are that you're righteous and God is unfair. That's what you said. Of course, Job's claim all along is there's no sin in his life. That's what his claim was. And if Job has a pronounced sin in the book of Job, it is his declaration of self-righteousness. And he was a bit self-righteous throughout the book of Job. But he said, you said it, Job. In verse number 6, he said, not only did you say that, but he said, you said I have been wounded and my wound is incurable. And we know that's not right. God can cure anything in anybody. As a matter of fact, the Lord Jesus walked into Bethany and there's a man in the grave that was in there four days and they were convinced, his sisters were convinced, his body had already begun to decay and his body yet stinketh, they said. 
And yet he called him out of the grave, raised him from the grave. God raised his own son after he'd been in there three days and three nights. God can do whatever God decides to do. He can use a doctor. Aren't you thankful for doctors and nurses and medicines and procedures and those who can help us with physical therapy and the such like? He's ordained such in this walk of life. We're grateful for that. They're gifts given to us. But he said, he said, you said it, Job. You said, I've been wounded, and my wound is incurable. Verse number 6, should I lie against my right? My wound is incurable without transgression. Now, some of these phrases, I pointed them out a little long here and there, haven't said much about them, just would point them out from time to time. You'll notice in verse number 6, that's hard to interpret, isn't it? The first part, should I lie against my right? The equivalent to that is, in spite of being right, I've been called a liar, is what Job, what, what Job claimed. He says, my wound is incurable, and yet God's going to provide him a cure. We know that before we get out of the book of Job. He said, Job, you said I'm righteous. You said God's been unfair. You said I've been wounded, and my wound is incurable. Then in verses 7 through 9, he said, Job, you said it doesn't profit a man to serve God because all he gets from it is suffering. Verses 7 through 9. What man is like Job who drinketh up scorning like water? which goeth in company with the workers of iniquity and walketh with wicked men. He said, Job, you said this. You've been numbered like this. You've been counted as such. Verse number 9. For he saith, it profiteth a man nothing that he should delight himself with God. What he's saying is, is that God has sentenced an innocent man. That's what he is saying. Have you ever spoken to some wise man or some wise lady and maybe you asked them why and they responded wise to their pain or suffering and they responded to you and said, well, if there is a why, I've not yet to receive my just due. God has still been righteous. He's still been merciful, even though I may be in my suffering. But Job had lost sight of that. He said, I have something further to say, verses 1 through 4. Elihu quotes Job, gives him right back what he said, reminds him of what he said, verses 5 through 9. And then Job, uh, Elihu, excuse me, rebuts Job and says, God always does right, Job, verses 10 through 12. Now listen, we may not always be right or do right, but God is always right and God will always do right. He's always done right. He does all things well. Now, Elihu contends God's always right. Look at verses 10 through 12. Therefore, hearken unto me, you men of understanding. He's calling on all of them, Job, Elihu, Bildad, and so far. He said, therefore, because of all this, he said, listen to me. He said, hearken unto me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God that he should do wickedness, and from the Almighty that he should commit iniquity. He said, you got it all wrong, fellas. For the work of a man shall he render unto him and cause every man to find according to his ways. Yea, surely God uh, will not do wickedly, neither will the Almighty pervert judgment. He contends God's always right, and he always judges a man rightly. Now, that ought to send a message to the saved, and that ought to send a message to the lost. First of all, to the saved. This should produce humility. And it should produce thanksgiving in our lives that God will judge a man. To the saved, he does not judge us because of ourselves and our own sins. Thank God. 
He's pleased to look on Christ and to pardon us, as the songwriter said. He's pleased, he was pleased to to lay our sin on the Lord Jesus Christ. That our sin would be forgiven. That we would be set free. Listen to what Isaiah had to say about that. Isaiah 53, 4 and 5. Surely he, I love that, hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. He looks on him and sets us free. I'm not going to the white throne judgment of God. I'm headed to the Bema seat as a forgiven child of God. And it's not that my sin will be judged there. My works will be judged. You go to the county fair. Some of these children still participate in 4-H. Head to the county fair, to a flower show. Go to a flower show. The judges come around. They'll be four or five with clipboards. They'll, they'll comment on each, um, each flower that's been presented for judging. One will get high marks. One will get medium marks. Maybe one will get a different set of marks. But at the end, they'll tally the score. And one will get a blue ribbon. One will get a red ribbon. And the other one will get a yellow ribbon. And the reason why is one has gained first place. One has come across. Um, it's taken more time. To develop and, and present their, their flower, their plant, whatever it might be. You get to the judgment seat of Christ, dear friend. Um, our work's going to be tried so as by fire to see whether they will remain or not. Did you know my motive for being here tonight is on trial? Your motive for teaching Sunday school is on trial. When Donald Talbot unloads his sound equipment in a Baptist church somewhere in Bodock Holler, his motives are on trial. What we do and why we do it is on trial. Do I do what I do to draw a salary and get my insurance paid and things along that line? Or do I do what I do because Christ has called me to do it? It's on trial. This is not a profession. It's been years since we've heard the, the old saying that Preachers used to state about preachers there, there's a difference in a God called and a mama sent, right? Uh, I know two or three, I really think, is in the ministry because daddy was in the ministry. And mama leaned on him and put pressure on him. I know one that probably an hour from here, fine young man. It works well with his hands, has an understanding of construction, just like you all do, Brother Greg. Means well. But now, two generations put it on him ever since he was in diapers. You're going to be a preacher boy. you got to preach. you got to, you got to carry on the tradition. If God's calling a young man or an old man to preach, you ought to preach. Matter of fact, he won't ever be satisfied. He won't ever be settled in life until he does. But if a man surrenders to preach and God wasn't calling him, you ought to hand his license back in, or you ought to get up in front of his church. There's no shame in that. There's no shame in a man having zeal, wanting to serve God, and missing the voice of God, and then getting up and trying to straighten that out or straightening that out and saying, look, I missed it. I missed the Lord. God didn't call me to preach. 
There's no shame in saying that. Some men have done that. Um, I know some men personally that have done that. But to the saved, that God judges every man rightly, this should produce humility and thanksgiving because we're not judged on our own merit before God. I am judged on the merit of my elder brother, the Lord Jesus. What he has done is spoken for my sin. But to the lost, this should produce fear and trembling. Sad it doesn't much anymore these days. Um, Sometimes we look around and we wonder how long, God, how long, how long all these shootings and the brutalization of children and uh, the abuse of children in more ways than one, of course. How long, Lord? How long? How long do we get robbed and attacked, molested? How long? How long do we live in this sin-cursed world? How long are you going to let it go along? Go, go on. How long? Now, there's coming a day. It may seem like God's dragging his feet. God's not dragging his feet. Every lost man that rejects Christ is going to go to the lake of fire. He's going to hell. He's coming out the great white throne judgment, and he's going to be cast into the lake of fire. Every woman that rejects Christ the same. Say, preacher, I don't believe all that. It doesn't change anything. It doesn't change anything. We're living in the borders of a country that used to be so God-aware. Even lost men on Sunday didn't disturb the church. They'd shut the store down in the community. Even a lost man would do that. He wouldn't work his mules in the, in the fields on a Sunday. Even a lost man. We're so far removed from that anymore. And it's, it's not going to get worse one day in the future. It's done got worse, friend. But God's going to exact to every man his due. And the only escape for that is through Christ and his shed blood on Calvary. It's the only escape of it through salvation. Otherwise, condemnation, that's the score. You're under the condemnation, yet under the condemnation of God. The wrath of God you shall meet with. There's a farmer in the community that uh, pastor would uh, run into from time to time. The pastor was... Always careful to ask about the farmer's family and invite him to church. And finally, the farmer told him, he said, look, I'm not coming. You figured out by now I'm not coming. He said, why not? He said, surely you believe there's a God in heaven. You believe there's a heaven and a hell. Surely you believe the Bible to be the word of God. Why not? And he pointed across the bottom to a neighbor farmer, many acres across. He farmed one side of the bottom. The other farmer he was pointing to farmed on the other end. He said, there's one of your faithful church members. He said, I would guess. He shows up for every service, he and his wife and their children. I would guess they give. I would guess they read their Bible. I would guess they are people of prayer. But said, every time they turned around, said, there's one struggle after another struggle after another. And said, I want to tell you something. Said, I mind my own business. I work hard. Though I don't give to the church or anything like that, seems like I'm laying it by and have plenty and he said, um, he said, sir, so I'm going to tell you something. He said, God don't always pay up in the fall of the year. He said, you harvest your crops in the fall of the year, and that's where you, you gain your, your monetary gain. But he said, God don't always pay up in the fall of the year. 
He encouraged him to come to Christ, which he rejected him, of course. Elihu, he contends in verses 13 to 15. We'll pick up pace just a little bit. Uh, Elihu contends that God answers to no one, verses 13 to 15. The Bible says, Who hath given him a charge over the earth? Or who hath disposed the whole world? If he set his heart upon man, if he gather unto himself his spirit and his breath, in other words, Job, if he takes his breath out of your lungs, all flesh shall perish together, and man shall turn again unto dust. He says, he says, look, he said, God answers to no one. Why does he do that? Well, he's rebutting Job. Job's been whining. You heard him whine, didn't you? Where's God at in the midst of all this? Where is God? And he says, look, I want you to understand something, Job. If God were not on the scene, all he'd have to do is cut the spigot off, son. You'd be gone in a millisecond. God doesn't have to do anything. He doesn't have to give us cancer. He doesn't have to give us a heart condition. All he has to do is take his hand off of us. That's all he's got to do tonight. We're, we're done for. And so he says God answers to no one. Elihu contends in verses 16 through 20 that God is the impartial ruler over all. Look at verses 16 through 20. If now thou hast understanding, hear this. Hearken to the voice of my words. He's saying, fellas, listen to me now. Verse 17. Shall even he that hateth right govern? And wilt thou condemn him that is most just? Is it fit to say to a king, thou art wicked, and to princes you are ungodly? How much less to him that accepteth not the persons of princes, nor regardeth the rich more than the poor, for they are, for they all are the work of his hands. In a moment shall they die, and the people shall be troubled at midnight and pass away, and the mighty shall be taken without, uh, without hand. Elihu contends God is the impartial ruler uh, over all. In other words, God's not impressed with our bigness or our smallness. God's not intimidated by kings nor princes. God's not intimidated. As a matter of fact, they were included in the rhetoric right here. And again, uh, what Elihu is emphasizing, he's emphasizing the fact that God will do right. Now, men are partial, right? And we have our favorites. We do. Surely we're partial. We're sitting in church tonight. We'd be lying to say that we were not partial. There are people that we are closer to than we are to others. Even when it comes to uh, preachers and singers, we have our favorites. I do. I'm sure you do. And uh, matter of fact, I'm thinking about getting every recording I've got of myself, sitting around listening to it all the time. I'm kidding. You know I'm kidding. But what he's saying here is that men will flatter kings and princes and people with authority in order to gain favor. He said God doesn't do that. God doesn't do that. It's no harder for him to judge a king than it is for him to judge a pauper. Not a bit of problem for God. God's not intimidated nor impressed nor feel sorry. He'll have pity on a man who comes to know his son. That's, that's how you gain favor with God. He can put a Joe Biden or a crooked Hillary in, in their place just as quick as he decides to do it. And they ain't a cotton-picking thing any of them do about it. And one of these days, that bunch is going to stand for God, and we are too. 
Verses 21 to 25, Elihu now uh, contends that God is the omniscient judge of all. He knows everything. Watch this, 21 to 25, for his eyes are upon the ways of man, and he seeth, you ought to underline that word, all. For his eyes are upon the ways of men, and he seeth all his goings. There's no darkness nor shadow of death where the workers of iniquity may hide themselves. For he will not lay upon man more than right that he should enter into judgment with God. He shall break in pieces mighty men without number and set others in their stead. Therefore, he knoweth their works and he overturneth them in the night so that they are destroyed. Nothing escapes the all-seeing eye of God. He knows about me what you don't know. He knows about you what I don't know. He knows your sin and he knows mine. He knows our weaknesses. He knows where we're prone to stumble. He knows where, as we were talking about our motives and other stuff here a while back, uh, here just a few minutes ago, he knows about every bit of it. I'm glad God can talk with you and understand him too. Cynthia Darrell told me about Carson and the Lord's Supper. Y'all, would it offend you if I shared that? We were sitting out at the fellowship hall um, Sunday. I asked Darrell how he's doing. He said he's doing good. I said, I said, well, I said, Matthew and his bunch doing good. And he said, doing good. He said, I want to tell you something. He said that Carson, maybe Griffin too, I don't know, but Carson was throwing the ball. There was a window wound up broken, best I remember. A window wound up broken. And Matthew come in. This is Daryl and Cynthia's uh, son, the, the brother that Holly bows to. That's, that's who I'm talking about. And uh, Matthew asked the boys, asked the children, if one of them broke the window. And Carson said, well, I may have thrown a ball or something, but didn't admit to doing it. But they were observing the Lord's Supper at church after that. And no doubt that pastor read whatever pastor ought to read in the Lord's Supper from the book of 1 Corinthians where we ought to examine ourselves. And when it come time for him to partake of the Lord's Supper, he had to confess to his daddy. He judged himself. He confessed to his daddy, I did something wrong and I need to make that right. You hear me say this every time we observe the Lord's Supper annually. Old W.A. Criswell and R.G. Lee and some of those men, before they'd have revival or right after, or when their churches would find themselves in a time of crisis, they would observe the Lord's Supper. They were convinced that if a man heard the warning of 1 Corinthians and yet neglected it and partook of the Lord's Supper, that God would exact judgment in their lives. And they believe there to be evidence of that. But nothing escapes God. We can get it by one another, but you won't ever get it by God. Even in the darkness, nothing is hidden from him. Elihu contends God's in control. Nothing escapes him. And he answers to no one. 25 uh, through 30. 25 through 30. The Bible says, we'll read these hurriedly. Therefore he knoweth their works, and he overturneth them in the night, so that they are destroyed. He striketh them as a wicked man in the open sight of others. 
because they turned back from him and would not consider any of his ways, so that they caused the cry of the poor to come unto him, and he heareth the cry of the afflicted. When he giveth quietness, who then can make trouble? And when he hideth his face, who then can behold him? Whether it be done against a nation or against a man only, that the hypocrite reign not, lest the people be ensnared. Here's what he's saying in essence, and I've got a lot more in here that I could say. But he's saying here in part of this, if God chooses to be silent, who can charge him? If God chooses to remove himself, who can charge him? In in essence, it would be something like this. Very practically, if God sends the rain, who are we to argue with God? If God sends the snow, the scorching heat, Who are we to take issue with God? That's the idea, as simple as that sounds. And when he he talks about here, when he talks about God removing men and raising up men in their place, and he can do it in the night, I'll tell you who I thought about. I've preached from the episode probably seven or eight times since we preached through the book of Esther on the parking lot. But in Esther chapter number five, you remember that night of the first banquet Esther prepared? We thought she was going to expose Haman, but she didn't. And a lot of people believe that Esther choked. She got scared. It's not it at all. It wasn't that Esther wasn't prepared or she wasn't ready. God wasn't ready. Oh, in the night. God caused that king's sleep to be taken from him. And everything was set up like a bunch of dominoes in a line. And all he did was tip it off. And they began to fall the next day. And it wasn't Mordecai that was impaled upon the gallows of Haman. But he was hanged himself on his own gallows. And his ten sons will be hanged in a short time to follow. Here's what the Bible says in Proverbs 19, 21. There are many devices in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the counsel of the Lord, that shall stand. Look at verse 31 through 35. Elihu contends God doesn't owe anyone any favors. He must have been looking right at Job. When you read these verses, he's talking to Job. He must have been looking right at him. 31 to 33, look at these verses here. And we're almost done. Surely it is meet to be said unto God, I have borne chastisement. I will not offend any more. That which I see not, teach thou me. If I have done iniquity, I will do no more. Should it be according to thy mind, he will recompense it. Whether thou refuse or whether thou choose, and not I, therefore speak what thou knowest. We're permitted to ask why. No, we've been told we're not to ask why across the Bible Belt, but we're permitted to do so. Matter of fact, we're encouraged to do so in two or three places of the New Testament. Our Lord uh, did so on the cross of Calvary. I think we are permitted and even encouraged even to ask God, would you reveal my sins? If there be iniquity in me, if there be any wicked way about me, God, would you reveal that to me? And he will. If you'll be honest enough to ask. Most of us like our sin too much to ask for God to remove it. Or maybe our shortcoming and our weaknesses. But here's what Elihu is saying to Job. He's saying, Job, God owes you no explanation for why you are where you're seated today. He doesn't owe you any explanation. And God doesn't owe me any explanation. And he doesn't owe you any explanation. I'll tell you something. A lot of what's preached today 
is so man-centered. We think God owes us an explanation as to why the sun rises at the time of the day it does, and God owes us an apology if it didn't rise at the right time. If we didn't get the promotion, if we were passed over and someone else got it, somehow God owes us an explanation for that, but he doesn't. He doesn't owe us any explanation whatsoever. I think we go to demanding answers from God in that light. I think we've gone too far. I think if we become bitter because we're selfish and God didn't answer that prayer the way I wanted him to answer that prayer, and we become bitter or God takes something from us, maybe it's a loved one even, we become bitter, we've gone too far with God. Is your confidence in God tonight? He does do all things well, you know. There's a family seated in our church, and the lady of that family said to my wife, it's not been that long back. Um, my wife was letting her know that they were in our prayers, and this is what she said. She said, Miss Amanda, we know God has a plan for our lives. And that almost brings me to tears again tonight. That so touched me. Miss Amanda, we know God has a plan for our lives. They were sitting at a place where had it been all about them, they could have become bitter. But we know God. You know the essence of that? We know God knows best. And he'll get us through. And he does get us through, child of God. Lastly, Elihu not only quotes from Job in this chapter, he's going to quote Job's three friends. Job's three friends, you remember them? They felt like Job should be prosecuted to the fullest. They want to pile on some extra charges. Watch this. The last verses of the chapter, 34 through 37. Let men of understanding tell me, and let a wise man hearken unto me. Job hath spoken without knowledge, and his words were without wisdom. He said, I've pointed out Job's folly. He said, my desire is that Job may be tried unto the end because of the answers for wicked men, for he addeth rebellion unto his sin. He clappeth his hands among us and multiplieth his words against God. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar felt like, they still feel like, they felt like there's some gross sin in Job's life. That's why he's suffering, the way he's suffering. But they said not only that, he, it's tearing us all to pieces. said, add rebellion to the charge. They charged Trump with 34 indictments, got 34 indictments by the grand jury, at least at this point, in New York City, trumped up charges, we all believe. And these old boys trying to trump up charges. They want more charges. And look at what they said. They went on to say he's quoting them. They all feel as though he's clapped his hands in their face. For he added rebellion unto his sin. He clappeth his hands among us and said then, in verse number 37, the last phrase, and multiplieth his words against God. Look, we've, we've tried to be um, fair in, in our assessment of Job and his friends, even here in Elihu. Elihu does reveal some things in these three chapters, at least thus far, that needed to be revealed truth of the matter is sometimes life is very unfair very unfair 
But God is not unjust. And if we want to become bitter about life, maybe we need to become bitter toward the devil and sin. Sin takes our loved ones from us. Sin ushered in death. Sin put the thorn on the rose bush. Sin brought pain into the world. Sin did that. Maybe we should be angry tonight at sin because of what it's done in our lives. Sin distorts, it distracts, it divides us all. Sin, God doesn't do any such of a thing. God's plans are perfect. The devil's plans are to destroy. Thank you for being here. Let's stand with this missing prayer.